This is Blackstone Joe, and you're listening to Slick Talk. If I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. Welcome in to episode 100. Yes, we finally have reached the century mark of episodes. And in my mind, that's a big deal. And I think it's a big deal for a lot of our listeners too. So we wanted to commemorate the occasion with a retrospective of sorts. And part of that's for us. You know, we we constantly want to be aware of, you know, what we've done before, the improvements we made, the improvements we can make from here. And a big part of that is looking at the evolution of the show. And we thought a lot of you would also be interested in kind of what our starting point was. What were some of the decisions that went into, let's say, production changes or how the episodes have grown over time, the creative choices we've made. Some of them are obvious to you and some of them we'll point out through the course of the show. Uh, I say we because I'm not alone today. Helping me steer the ship is Josh, producer of Slick Talk. How we doing, everybody? Josh is usually the ghost in the machine, as it were, but I want him here with me because, number one, he's been here with me for the majority of the episodes and just behind the boards, but now I want him to kind of talk alongside me, guide me through when I'm working across the history of the show, um, and as well as articulate some of the changes on the production side, because for the most part, I'm in the business of doing the host job, which is, you know, at times scripting, um, you know, working on episode ideas, talking with the guests, etc. But there's a whole lot more that goes into creating a show. And Josh, you know, all about that. So well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it certainly starts with you, though, of course, and the show's content and the I mean, the goal of the episode, whatever we're gonna be talking about oil analysis wise. And from there, you know, just give you a little bit of a boost in post and you're ready to go. Usually, I think you're also a sounding board too. Like, and it's been important for me over the course of the show to talk about you know what I'm thinking as far as episode content or or editing choices, making sure that you know things sound okay, not just to me but to you. And also, I think you're really important for reassuring me when like I have doubt about an episode or I'm like very critical of of myself or the content and you're kind of like there to remind me when to be positive too, which I think is important. Much less jaded. Mm-hmm. For sure. <laughs> I don't think I've ever come at you with and said an idea sucks or shot you down. It's always been a polite letdown of a, you know, but what if we saw it this way or, or what if, what if we, we do this? <laughs> is there something you're thinking of specifically where I did that? Oh, I don't know if I can put my finger on it right now, but I knew that like I always trusted you since the episode you first appeared on. You did a Meet the Analyst way back, and ironically, that's not part of our retrospective today, but in that sense, I guess we can kind of talk about that um, when you joined me on that first show. What do you remember about sitting down for that recording? Well, it was probably the first extended conversation I ever had with you. We began in 2020. That would be you, right, yeah. When you started working out of the office uh, for a prolonged period of time. So 
seeing any of the senior analysts in person was sort of like a Bigfoot sighting. Yeah. <laughs> and here I was being uh, ushered into the conference room for the first time and dialing you up on Skype. Oh, my gosh. Before that, you were sort of just the vo- um, a voice on the other end of the line telling me all of the things that I'm screwed up on a, a report that I was about ready to send out. And so, yeah, a little bit of fear, but after a while, I became... I, know, I remember you had probably the best answer to the one question I asked a lot of the analysts on those episodes, which was, did you have any jobs prior to this that kind of informed your ability to be an analyst at Blackstone, you know, talk to customers and help them with their reports. And just your answer of working at a dealership before this was as perfect as it could be. Um, at least until I talked to Samir, in which case, <laughs> in which case Samir is kind of like if you were to go in a lab and design an analyst with a perfect background. <laughs> you mean someone that actually knows things about engines before starting? <laughs> Literally worked on them. And also, I mean, he worked in a shop too, but being in a dealership environment alone is kind of enough to give you the the language and the tone and sort of the insight into what people who are owning cars and, and responsible for them, you know, kind of what they need to hear. So that was that was a good dialogue we had on that topic alone. So this is episode 100, Joe. What's on your mind now? What are you thinking about the first 99? And what are you thinking about the next 100? Well, when I sat down to record this episode, I was a little apprehensive about doing such an in-depth retrospective, mainly because of the kind of the secondhand embarrassment you can get, like like when you hear yourself on answering machine growing up, or when you hear yourself played back anytime. It's always kind of like a cringe moment, but the more I thought about it, the more excited I was to look at how the show has evolved over time. And there is definitely a sense of pride over the show itself, creating it, maintaining it, and also growing the show into something more than what it has been, whether that was starting off late 2019, handling the challenges of 2020, getting back in the groove of things in the office in 2021. And just, there's always been uh, an inflection point uh, routinely. And now I'm kind of excited to look back at all of that and celebrate the the moments of growth and um, as well as exploring how we can continue to move things forward. So I'm excited to dig into it. Yeah, so we'll be looking back across the first 99 episodes of Slick Talk today. And you and I reviewed countless bits and pieces of interviews and um, sermons about oil analysis uh, over the last couple of weeks. Is there anything during that process that you um, remembered being hard or easier about kicking off Slick Talk? Well, I found that the guest episodes were challenging in the moment, kind of challenging to think about, stressful in the process leading up to them. But in the retrospective side, that's what I've really enjoyed listening back to the most. So over the course of the show's development, while those moments were hard at the time, um, I've noticed that I really hold a lot of those episodes near and dear compared to the moments where I was just kind of uh, driving the show along one monologue at a time. Looking back at those moments with the guests, whether they're inside the building or if they're customers we've connected with online or just met in person in some cases, all of these episodes with our guests were kind of the ones I really enjoyed looking back at the most. That's why we pulled several clips from them to show off today. 
So I think it's interesting how even if the creative process can be difficult, it's worth it because when you look back on those moments, that's often where you challenged yourself the most and uh, what you can end up really enjoying in the long run. So the first clip we're going to go with here is from your interview with Max Rebs. That episode had me terrified <laughs> at the time. <laughs> but like I said, I love it looking back. So just to preview this a little bit, Max Revs reached out early on, um, as you can tell by the episode numbers. So this was way back. Um, what is this, episode 13? 13. So early on, he reached out and he was like, hey, I, I, I've heard about your show. I've heard about Blackstone. Um, I'd love to sit down and chat. And this was obviously you know, early stages of the pandemic as well. So we had time to sit around and plan this and do this remotely. Obviously, we had to. He is in London. And he had a really official setup. He was very professional, very well-spoken, and obviously an expert in his lane that is Porsche, anything Porsche, but especially Cayman's 911s. He's very well-versed in that. So it was intimidating for me because of everything he knew, the devote community following he had. This was going to be a live stream, so like all the questions that could come in, I had no idea what was going to show up on the screen, handling all that in the moment being a representative for Blackstone, like all of it's flooding back to me right now. But sitting down for that talk was very intimidating. However, uh, he just was a professional through and through. And we have a couple of moments from that episode where I just thought our connection and what Blackstone means, what we can find in testing, it all kind of came together in a really nice way. All right, awesome. Let's get to it. Joe, how you doing? You're on camera. Thank you so much for joining us on this channel here today. So Chris puts in touch with your company. So like, you know, let's just sort of hear a bit more about you, a bit more about your company before we get into anything sort of technical. If you could maybe give us a bit of a background to your role and the company, that'd be great. Um, I started with Blackstone uh, back in 2017. And the company itself, though, they've been around since 1985 and started with the founder, Jim Stark. And what we what he really imbued um, within the company was, you know, just to paraphrase a quote of his, you know, we don't hire doctors to explain our reports. We are the doctors. So Blackstone has always we've always strived to be conversational, but factually based. And that's kind of carried on to uh, Jim's kids who now run the company, Ryan Stark, president and Kristen Huff, VP, and with a background in engineering and English and uh, respectively, um, they've kept that legacy going of being fact-based, but conversational and to the point. Wow. So do you, do you actually, what, what did you start with as a company then? Did, uh, you mentioned engine, like aircraft engines. So I didn't actually realize this. So was the, the founding of the company doing engine or analysis for any particular vehicles or did, was, you know, was it just wide ranging to start with? Anyone that, that could be sold to. <laughs> so basically Blackstone knew that oil analysis could be vital to literally anything that needs oil to do its job. So engines are obviously a focal point, but even just industrial application, um, just to share a quick story, um, Ford has a stamping plant um, here in the States and we happen to have an account with them. So they had a piece of machinery um, that was breaking down, but they didn't know it without the help of used oil analysis. They didn't know that there were literally pieces of gears coming apart. Yeah. Well, long story short was with a $15 analysis at the time, 
our prices have changed in the years since. Um, but with a $15 analysis, they were able to prevent a $5 million repair. Wow. So situations like that have kept us in industrial, whether it's something as simple as a, a stamping press, hydraulic, um, any splash lubrication system. So we really are across the board, but I think a lot of people think engines first with us because um, you know, that's where we really get to be conversational and we get to really kind of uh, take part in the enthusiasm that people, especially um, Porsche owners have for their cars. So that's where it gets really fun to inject some personality uh, more so than you might find in other applications. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm really stoked about this because it's only about a year ago that I knew someone uh, selling uh, a Porsche. It's 911, and he kind of knew that the engine was having a few issues. And the reason that he wanted to sell the car is when he got the oil change, he, his the closest he could get to checking the oil, he cut the oil filter in half. And I think you hold it up to mm -hmm. a light and you look for little fragments. But like I'm right. thinking, what you must be doing what goes well ahead of just looking for fragments in an oil filter. So. Well, that's what's fun because I mean that's obviously so. It's always good to look at things closely on your end if you can, but we're catching things at the microscopic level far uh, far before, you know, you'll often find visible evidence. So visible evidence like, you know, pieces of metal in the filter, that can certainly be more evidence of a problem along with what we can find. But we're trying to catch things before you start finding um, the, the, the pieces that often translate to an immediate problem, costly repairs, so on. Gotcha, gotcha. So let's try and get into a bit more detail. So we've got some of the guys chatting away saying uh, you're really well known in the BMW community. So I don't know if that's just a regional thing, but this guy basically says the BMW guys, that they all know about you, they all use you guys. So let's kind of like get into this a little bit more. So I mean, in terms of like, um, like the people who kind of come to your company, so would you say that they're track enthusiasts or they're mainly like BMW guys? What would you say are the, the main reasons that people come and use an oil analysis? So I would come to you if I'm going to buy a new car but then i think right. once i know that the car's you know good and good nick i probably wouldn't do it every year i can understand why chris who's your customer he gets it done every year because he tracks his car so what are the different mm -hmm. customer profiles that you kind of like you know try to meet in the market i would hesitate to say there's a dominant um side because really even across like bmws and porsches you know a lot of people might assume oh well these are all track guys and true enough a lot of them are but you also have a pretty widespread you have a lot of people who really keep them in the garage and they might just go to a show they might take it out of the garage a few times a year and you also have people who are very modification heavy so maybe they aren't tracking but maybe they are constantly adding some sort of mod and want to see how the engine, you know, if you're uh, adding more boost or if you are doing any sort of a tune, um, we'll have people who they will swear to it that they aren't really driving it hard. I don't know if I believe them all the time, but um, there's a good spread of track enthusiasts, people who just want to mess with the car as much as they can, and then people who just want to take really good care of it and they just love it and want to have it in their garage as long as they can. This is a question that I'd love to know if it is just a black or white or whatever, but let's just say I do a thousand miles a year and I put fresh oil in every year. Can oil just degrade and lose its goodness and lubricating properties as oil if it just sits in the car? Or, you know, what's the deal around that? You know where I'm so, going from, yeah? 
in a very uncertain year where a lot of bad news has been going around, this is one piece of absolute good news I can give people. It's that you do not need to change the oil based on calendar time. Um, now, I am all for peace of mind. You know, if, if for some people, it's just going to come down to I will feel better if I change it. And absolutely. But there's no in a modern engine. The beauty of these things is they are sealed up tight. That means that corrosion or moisture buildup, that's not a concern. And when the oil is not accumulating moisture, when corrosion is not a big deal, you're not going to have the oil's condition be ruined simply by sitting in the sump. It's only going to accumulate metal with use. So if you're not having metal buildup, you don't have contamination, and it's not going to simply lose viscosity either. So you can keep things mileage-based, and that really simplifies things, I think. So no matter what you're doing, always count on all right, how many are if you're going to track hours? Sure. Or miles on the oil? Sure. But calendar time is something you can really put uh, put aside. And that goes for whatever you want to talk about, be it um, a BMW, a Porsche across the board. Cool. Fantastic. And I know I've just got one last kind of question on this. So let's just say while we're on the metals and we haven't kind of moved on to the other items, let's right. just say that the engine was suffering from ball scoring or something. Uh, where, okay. where out of these metals, would you notice it out the top? Yeah, so with bore scoring um, in, in this engine, um, you're going to look for that like much like we would any other cylinder area issue. So primarily you're going to see things like aluminum and iron. And sometimes you'll see some chrome in the mix there too. But aluminum and iron, that's what's going to show trouble like piston scuffing or you know, iron's going to be from the cylinder walls themselves. And then you have aluminum from the pistons. So bore scoring is going to register. You're going to see those metals in some cases, pretty darn high. Um, it really depends how long people have run the oil and how um, bad the problem is. But yeah, I'm absolutely going to look towards those cylinder area metals to indicate a problem like bore scoring. But one interesting engine to kind of bring into the conversation on that um, would be the 3.6 liter flat six. The unique thing there is the, uh, the cylinders are actually aluminum and silicon based. And you're going to see aluminum from the pistons too two and then iron's going to be in there as well so that's a unique case where we're going to go a bit further down the page and we're going to look to a high silicon number along with aluminum to indicate a problem like bore scoring but that's kind of something unique to that engine um, otherwise in most cases we're going to look mainly just to aluminum chrome iron so that was my talk with max and I didn't say this earlier, but if you have any interest in what you heard with Max Revs on that episode, um, I would encourage you to check it all out, but also go give his channel a follow. Go see what he's doing. He's very active on YouTube, um, and he's a great guy and someone who I'd like to connect with again, but fun one to look back on. It's always nice when I can talk to someone who is sort of aware of Blackstone, but not an expert yet, because it kind of gives me a chance to talk about it in a way where, you know, they don't have a jaded perspective on oil analysis yet. And it's not to say that, like, I was looking for chances to sell what we do as much as it's, it's nice to be the voice, the messenger, and not someone who's kind of like correcting the record at every step of the way. It's more so like me getting things off on the right foot 
and informing him of what we do from from an inside the lab perspective. So that way it's not one of those situations where I have to say, oh, I know you've heard that about oil analysis, but that's not what it is. And, you know, I didn't have to go through that, which was nice. For sure. Yeah. He's the um, he's the spokesperson for a passionate fan base. So we got our next clip here. And this one's a little nearer and dearer to you. Your personal friend, Thomas, joined the pod to talk about his Honda Accord. Yeah, this was one where I thought it would be a very nice example for the listeners to hear a dialogue between an analyst and someone who is not related to Blackstone at all. Thomas had seen reports, obviously, um, being my friend, he had looked at them and I had talked to him about Blackstone. But having this back and forth was great because he has you, the listener, your perspective. So you get to hear questions from the mind of someone who is, you know, aware of Blackstone in some ways, you know, knows uh, oil analysis here or there, but he's asking questions that are organic and really fit the mold of a prospective customer, um, many of our listeners, so on. So I thought it was a great opportunity to connect in a way that most listeners would appreciate because Thomas is playing the role of the customer here or someone who's just trying to get into oil analysis and I have the opportunity to have that nice back and forth because a lot of our episodes is kind of like um, analyst to analyst. And that's great. You get to hear more of what we think and that's helpful in some cases, but I like to also appeal directly to the listener as much as I can. And that was the idea behind this one. All right, here's Thomas. Things went from okay in that first report for your Honda to another place. Uh-huh. Um, another place altogether. A- yeah, I want to I want to talk about that report because, you know, we starting off, yeah, you had a less than ideal set of results. But then things really went like haywire. Um so let's let's go to that point in time. Um, you had a, a really rough sample, but just going before you took it, what was going on with the car? What was what were the issues that popped up before you took this sample? So I can remember at that point in time, I was having some pretty rough starts on the car um, where, you know, I'd turn it on and it would start to rev like it was a freaking airplane engine. Uh, and I didn't feel like I was getting the mileage that I thought I would get normally and the car just felt like it was kind of riding a little rougher um, which with the last report had me obviously on edge Um, so going into this one I kind of had my fingers crossed I was kind of bearing down hoping that this is all just in my head and I just am making all of this up the car's probably okay I you know I haven't been driving it as hard um, which was just a lie I was telling myself uh, but yeah, so I, I had this really, really worried outlook on my car at that point in time. And I think you might have the results handy. So this, this is a report I would have been, I mean, there is no, there is no particular level that is like at, by rule failure. I mean, there, there can be. You know, when you have, like, in unison, like, you're not going to get this from, like, a gasoline engine or a diesel engine. But, like, okay, if there was a sample with a thousand parts per million of metal and it was an engine sample, 
like, all right, we're, we're probably looking at an obvious failure, but like when you get just in the hundreds, it's, it can be a toss up. And I think you had just going to the results. I think you had at least one medal in maybe the three hundreds. Yeah. My iron was all the way up at three thirty eight on that particular oil sample. I think you also had, you had aluminum up there, you had chrome, um, you know, a lot of cylinder area action and also just, you know, iron can be from anything steel. So you probably had, you know, something from like, you know, crank cams, et cetera. Um, but lo and behold though, the Honda's not in the junkyard. So something changed for the better going after that report. What do you have to do maintenance wise? What were the repairs? What, what was involved in, in keeping that car on the road? Yeah. So that's a fairly interesting, just a little bit more background. I was really worried about this car because, uh, and I think I told you about this, the oil filter at some point got like a pinhole in it. And then all of the oil started to drain out of the car and I didn't realize it because I was driving down the highway. Woke up the next day, turned it on. And I thought for sure it was making sounds like, like somebody had just come out late at night and beat it with a baseball bat. Uh, so I was like, well, that's it. We're selling. Um, but I think another interesting area to go to, though, is what is what is like maybe an assumption you had about maintenance, um, vehicle maintenance that maybe oil analysis has changed. For a lot of people, that is the 3,000-mile oil change. People will like test and, and they'll assume that the oil shouldn't be in use longer than that. Like some people will only send in a sample because they went longer than 3000 miles and they're worried that they ruined the engine. Like that's still a concern to that degree for a lot of people. So is there anything like that maybe that you don't worry about anymore that you might've, or just a, a common, um, assumption about vehicle maintenance that you don't really take seriously anymore or anything like that? So one thing that I would definitely say has changed is kind of that idea of mileage, um, but actually a little bit in the opposite direction. You know, I figured as long as the car is telling me that little meter is ticking down and it's saying, oh, you got 30% of the oil life left. You're good. Uh, that's kind of changed. And, and just trying to keep the oil wear or the engine wear you know, down by increasing the frequency with which I get oil changes, you know, lowering that interval, that mileage interval, uh, is one thing that I think has changed after these. The other thing, uh, that has changed after these several samplings is the understanding that if there is a high number, it's not going to go away necessarily in the next one, even if it's a shorter interval, because, you know, as you always tell me, you can't get all of the oil out of the engine there's going to be some leftovers. So just keep in mind, you know, even if you do a short interval and you have another high number, as long as it's not going up, you know, stick with it. Don't worry about it so much right now because you're going to have to flush that a couple different times to try and get all that wear metal out. Yeah, so that was Thomas and I. And again, a fun look back, a unique episode in the Slick Talk canon in that here's a guy who is trying to learn more about his engine, not a self-professed gearhead by any stretch, but having a lot of those questions that so many of you have. What do these elements mean? You know, what 
is an analysis going to tell me? All of that is wrapped up in that episode, and it's a lot of fun to look back at that talk, and it truly stands as a unique entry into Slick Talk. So this next clip we've got here um, is one that's a little bit near and dear to my heart because this was right around the time I joined as producer-editor. Um, it is your interview with Michael Thomas, the lubrication engineer. Yeah, it was a big one, no doubt. Um, I think just the partnership in general was pretty momentous for a lot of reasons. And one of them was a little bit of apprehension, I think, in that when someone from Pennzoil reaches out to us and talks about collabing, it was a real sort of hemming and hawing on my end because if you know us well, you know that we are not beholden to any manufacturer any oil brand blend etc so while this was a chance to have a, a really fun talk and it, and it was a, a really good one not wanting anyone to get the idea that we were becoming attached i guess not wanting to give them the idea that we were endorsing or any that was kind of a a, a big point um, stopping point at first, it wasn't an automatic, yes, let's do this. I, I, it was a, a conversation behind the scenes. When we sat down and recorded it, it went off without a hitch. It was a really fun episode and a chance to talk about oil from the laboratory perspective as well as a representative of Pennzoil and, and getting their insight. So a good talk between two people with you know, we, we called it different eyes, same prize in the sense that, you know, we look at these things differently, but it's all in the name of helping people take care of what they own. So really proud of that collaboration. And I think throughout the process, while it was kind of um, an interesting lead in as far as making the choice, do we do this collab or, or, or not? The end result was, was really nice. All right. Here's Michael Thomas of Pennzoil. I'm glad you like reached back to, you know, the beginning for you, because that's kind of where I wanted to start off, because whether it was watching your dad work on the family station wagon or participating in Dodge Chrysler Plymouth troubleshooting contest back in high school, I'm thinking you had to hear a lot of do's and don'ts with regards to the engine, the transmission, whatever needed oil to do its job. So can you tell me what lessons you learned then? that still apply today and maybe what you've left behind now that you've learned so much more in the 40 plus years of the of working in the automotive industry? Joe, that's an excellent question. And if you go back a couple of generations and not trying to sound like I'm an old geezer, so to speak, but I was back there when we still had non-detergent and detergent, and of course everything's detergent now, but back then, Oh my goodness, uh, you would have uh, people who would literally, and I guess even today, would literally keep oil in a lot longer, not not change the oil and just figured, you know, we can just grab any oil off the shelf and put it in our engine and we can just chuckle on down the road. And now it's amazing how things are literally the clearances and tolerances in engines today, it's just changed. And I still get some, some older gentlemen, so to speak, will still call me now and say, look, I've been around a long time. I I know oil. I can feel it between my fingers. I know it. 
this. I know it, but I know I can use this. You know, one thing I can tell you real fast, Joe, and this won't take about maybe 30 seconds. I had a gentleman uh, recently in the last year or so who uh, who has a number of classic Mustangs, 60, 66 Mustang. He had a boss, but he bought a brand new one. And he figured he could use the same oil that he has in his 66 and 1970 Mustang to put in his 2020 Mustang. And needless to say, in a nutshell, this gentleman only had about six or 7,000 miles on and the vehicle ended up going back to the dealer. This vehicle was requesting uh, 5W20. That's what Ford is stating, 5W20 synthetic blend. No, this uh, gentleman who knows vehicles, very nice um, gentleman, but he uh, he figured, let me put 2050 in there. I put 2050 in my uh, my 302 Mustang. I put, you know, in my 289, 1966. Let me put it in my newer Mustang. And I tell you, nice Mustang. He sent the picture. It was a black Mustang convertible, beautiful GT. But needless to say, the clearances and the tolerances were, were uh, wasn't having it. And the vehicle ended up going back to the dealer. And the people at the dealer was checking it out, Joe. And they kept it a couple of days and they said, what in the world's going on? And they had the oil analyzed, Joe. <laughs> I don't know if they sent it to you, but they, they sent it and got it back in a day or two. They, they did it really fast. And they asked the customer, you know, hey, the oil looks good, but who changed the oil? I changed the oil. It's a high performance new Mustang. And I put what I put in my old Mustangs in there. And they said, you just, and again, apparently he had some valve train issues uh, after, and he didn't have 5,000 miles on it. So they, you know, I got involved. Uh, he called me, the customer called me ranting and raving and they had the, the service manager on the line. And we've come to the conclusion, thick oil is not better. <laughs> so, so Joe, uh, didn't want to ramble on, but that was, you know, things that have, that has gone on, I would say definitely in the motor oil area, transmission area, Joe, if we go out in that area, you know, it used to be just type F and Dextron. Not today. <laughs> not today. What do you tell people who maybe are hesitant to go longer than 3,000 or maybe, you know, it's just that rule that their dad taught them and they're so scared to stray from it. What do you tell folks when they say, hey, Chevy or Ford or whoever told me I can go longer, but I don't know. How do you approach that? I approached that, Joe. The first thing I said, look, this is new times, new era. The OEMs and their engineers have ran these engines through the mill with today's modern motor oils and these oils can definitely do the intervals which are stated i know you feel uncomfortable i'm from those times where three months three thousand miles that was the rule but we are looking at motor oil that's far better than what it was years ago we're talking the additive packages and then most of all the oils that are used by the oems are synthetic blend or full synthetic those packages have the ability to go six, seven, eight, and look at your German vehicles. That's you know ten to, to twelve to fifteen thousand miles. So again, I explained that all the work has been done behind the scenes year years before. <laughs> so there's not they're not just telling you just to uh, leave the oil in. So and a number of customers say you know they want us to leave it in so we can blow the engines up so we have to come back and buy new vehicles. I've heard that a few times. <laughs> said, no, that's not true. Every day, every day. <laughs> All right. Hope you enjoyed that clip of Michael and I. I think Michael was one of the more talkative, 
eager, enthusiastic guests where he was ready to roll. You know, um, sometimes when you have a guest on the other end, they need a little bit of encouragement or or some time to open up. And Michael was a really good, charismatic presence with a lot of knowledge and a lot of really good stories. And he's still doing the podcast thing. Uh, this time he has his own show, though. So um, I believe it's called Michael's Motor Alley. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I've checked out some of it. Michael is is a good guy, and, and that was a fun talk. And I think more than anything, people might just enjoy a lot of his stories over the years of taking care of his own cars and, and the work he does with Pennzoil. So really fun, in-depth talk between a couple people with very different vantage points on – you know, maintenance, but we both are trying to do a lot of the same things. So this next clip we've got here is going to be from probably one of my favorite interviews you've done, or at least subject matters. Ooh. Ultra 4 Jones. Yes. On episode 43. Ultra 4 Jones, um, a.k.a. Kevin, or Kevin, a.k.a. Ultra 4 Jones. I guess that's the order. So he fits into the category of sort of, when we dreamed up this show, what we had in mind as far as interaction, I think, where we have customers who are, you know, enthusiastic about Blackstone anyway, then they hear the podcast, and then they want to participate in that as well. And it's that overlap where customer, listener um, interaction that is really a driving force of the show, a, a key ingredient of what keeps it going. And Kevin, aka Ultra Fort Jones, is someone who's very articulate, and that's why he's been on more shows than just ours. So he is a very fun interview because he's just so knowledgeable and a guy who is well-spoken. So a lot of fun talking with someone who is an expert in, in what they do. So um, I didn't come up with this, but uh, I heard it put this way and I, I think they absolutely nailed it so ultra four is a form of off-road racing and it's best described if you took a rock crawler and a trophy truck and they made a baby so you end up with a incredibly capable four-wheel drive vehicle that can travel over pretty much any terrain so ultra four is a sanctioning body that that uh, most notably promotes a race called king of the hammers every February in, in California desert. And um, it's touted as the single hardest one day race in the world. And I, I don't really disagree with that, having now raced it a couple of times. So just talking about difficulty right there, um, difficulty for the driver as well as the vehicle, a little bit of both. Like, like what are the challenges when you're handling the wheel that might make it the hardest race? Yeah, it's, it's really kind of the, the man versus machine versus the elements. So the, the terrain out there where the race is held in Johnson Valley, California, is it's coveted by the Marines. They actually have an installation right next door, 29 Palms, and they, they train out there to simulate some of the roughest conditions in the world that uh, our soldiers might fight war in. It's got you know vast deserts, but it's also got uh, really tall mountains and very rocky canyons. When you race, they connect uh, all these rocky canyons across the desert, and it ends up being, you know, a multi-multi-hour race. So my first year, we were in the car. It was belted in the car for nine hours racing. And then uh, this last year, we, we did it a little bit faster. We did it in about seven hours. So now, I mean, of course, we have to get into a little bit 
of our lane, which is the oil, are there, is it, is it just like anywhere else where people are, are each going to swear by their own favorite thing? Or is there a superior brand blend that people say you have to be using this? What's the oil talk like, if any, um, in that community? Yeah, it, it is just like any other form of racing that I've been around in my life where um, you've got the diehards that, that swear by, you know, this, this is what my dad always used, this is what I use. Then you've got the guys that are like, hey, I don't, I don't care what I use. If, if a sponsor, a brand is willing to give it to me, I'll use it. And then you've got a lot of guys that, you know, well, so-and-so does good. And he uses this, so I'll use this. Um, and and I'm I, I'm probably more just my own man of you know I, I I know I've worked on a lot of things automotive in my life and and I, I kind of I don't know have had anything I've had good luck with is is something I tend to fall back on. So and what are the I mean as far as you know weights go? Is there a typical weight you'll see everyone using? Does that vary just so much depending on the car? What do you run in particular? Uh, yeah, it does. It does vary. I think you get a lot of guys that don't, they don't really understand oil technology, uh, viscosity ratings even. And, you know, they just, they buy something cause it sounds cool or, or, you know, or the numbers are bigger or something like that. But, you know, for me, I, my engine is out of a 2005 Escalade. It's a six liter, uh, Chevy LS engine and it's not modified in the oiling system other than an aftermarket pan. So I run mobile one off the shelf from, you know, my local Walmart. I don't run a heavy viscosity. I run a, I run a 1040. And then in the transmission, I just run the like, you know, local auto parts brand type F trans fluid, because that's what my transmission builder wanted me to run. It's a, it's a Chevy turbo 350. And then in my differentials, I run um, actually a 250 weight oil uh, made by Maxima because uh, the guy that sets up my ring and pinion gears for me, that's what he asked me to run that he's had good, good luck with. Um, and then in the transfer case, I run a Redline brand heavy shockproof oil because the company that makes the transfer case uh, asks that you run that oil. So, you know, a lot of the times, if I don't know, I'll just go with a manufacturer recommendation um, or like in the case of the differentials, you know, this guy is putting his, his name on, on the product, the labor that he does for me. And, you know, I want to be respectful of, of what he's asking me to do. So, you know, I, I run the oil that, that he recommends. Yeah. A couple interesting things there. One of them being shockproof. So, so that, that's a unique product um, in that when we see it in testing, it has so much additive present. I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but if I remember right, it has just an absurd like amount of like calcium compared to, you know, similar products. And what ends up happening with all that additive when we, when we get in testing is it will fall out of suspension to the point where when we're measuring solids, how many insolubles are present, um, you'll just see all this additive collecting that fell out during testing. You know, it's not because it's a problem with the oil. It's just, it's how it behaves when it's being tested. And it's just like white solid, purely additive. And it's not a problem. But I remember when I first looked at a sample and I was getting ready to, you know, talk about it with the customer, I was like, oh my gosh, so much oxidation. This oil broke down tremendously. It, it was, it was t in, in terrible shape. And then, you know, we learn, obviously, we, we ask each other questions more seasoned analysts who, who, who have been around the block. And one of them, you know, I, I asked them, I was like, look at this oil, something's so wrong. And they're like, no, it's just, 
shockproof as add a, a lot of it. And then when we test it, it, that's just how it behaves. But yeah, it's a unique product for that reason. Well, that's pretty interesting. So the properties of the calcium help absorb some of the shock load? Is that is that kind of the intent there? It's definitely a boosted add of package compared to what you typically see. And I, and I think it's, it's obviously meant to somehow counter, you know, the extreme use that it's going to be experiencing. Yeah, looking back on that one, I think probably my favorite thing, coincidentally, you know, why we include some of this in the clip was just kind of asking him about the oils he uses and what he's heard as far as the do's and don'ts of maintenance. Because so often we're talking to people who are taking care of like, you know, a stock Camry, let's say, or, or a stock, you know, pickup or whatever. And obviously there's a wide range of opinions on maintenance there but when you get into ultra four racing like something as demanding as that it was really fun to hear just what the perspective is on maintenance and what they're looking for in analysis and just kind of what we run into every now and again around here which is oil that's being put through the most strenuous of conditions i think it surprised a lot of people how oil in that environment can still hold up just fine you know it was, it was fun picking his brain on all that. Hi, my name is Susie, and I'm a senior analyst at Blackstone Labs. My favorite days at the labs are the ones that start with telling a customer, good question. Blackstone has customers all over the globe, Germany, Australia, Canada. But recently, one of our French customers sent an interesting email. Attached was this amazing photograph from the skies above Mount Etna in Sicily, days after it erupted with white smoke billowing out of this enormous crater at the top. He was just sort of casually asking, since I was in the vicinity of this active volcano, do you recommend any special service to my filtration systems? It was one of those questions that blew my mind and made my day because of course we don't have any special procedures at Blackstone for volcano encounters. Like anyone, we aren't considering plate tectonics or lava flows every day, or what exactly the smoke coming from a volcano is made of. So my morning turned into researching volcanic smoke. It's usually a mix of water vapor, carbon dioxide, and sulfur gases. Any water would probably just evaporate, and anything gaseous doesn't sound especially abrasive. Will the air filter keep out any particles big enough to cause trouble? I would think so, but we don't exactly have thousands of previous samples to draw on and say you're in the clear, or this is what needs to be done. Ultimately, I complimented his awesome photography and sense of adventure and said we'd have to wait and see what turned up in his next sample. And I'm honestly pretty curious. The best part about having your samples tested at Blackstone is learning about your engine. But as analysts, we like learning too. So this next clip is going to be one with Ryan Stark, president of Blackstone Laboratories. And when I say I have a lot of affection for the guest episodes, this is definitely a, a good example of that. I think this interview was one of the most enjoyable to listen back on. The one you stressed over the most, though, too, if I recall. Yeah. Sitting down with your boss and uh, is... is uh, Something where even if you are on good terms, which we are, it's... It, you it's, hesitated a little bit there. <laughs> but it's kind of like you're, you, you feel like you're constantly in review, you're under the microscope when you're doing a podcast interview, just like you would be any other facet of your job. So it's impossible, it's impossible to act like, like this is um, 
you know, hanging out with your buddy watching the game. You know what I mean? Like it's it, you, you still have to be like, you're still constantly thinking of creating good product. One the listeners care about is he having a good time? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like all of that's kind of wrapped up into into one. So. Well, all right. Well, let's get to that good time then. Um, here is Ryan Stark on episode 49 of Slick Talk. And I want to stay in the past for a little bit because, well, maybe even going beyond Blackstone's beginning because, our, so Blackstone started in 85 with your dad, the founder, Jim Stark. Um, but maybe before then you had to hear about oil analysis and conversation, right? Do you remember when you first found out what it was before Blackstone started operations? Uh, not until 85. Uh, in 85, I was, um, I believe, probably in fifth grade. Oil changes and things like that were pretty far off the radar, uh, obviously. And Dad had actually started a uh, company called Research Laboratories, which specializes in diesel fuel testing. And I knew about that, but I didn't I didn't even bother to think about anything of that testing and how, how it worked. I just knew he did it. And that got him into the laboratory business. Uh, before that, he didn't really have any experience in laboratories. But when he started that lab, he was able to then translate a lot of the testing that was done in, in the diesel fuel industry over to the oil analysis side of things when he wanted to start Blackstone. So, so obviously, in the years since it started, in between, because you, you picked up things in 97, right, was, was your first yeah. year. So in between 85 and 97, did you have a sort of like an aha moment? Because for me, like after I started here, it wasn't long after that, that I took a sample from my now brother-in-law's truck and we found a coolant leak and saved the truck. And then like, so on top of me learning, you know, going through training, I saw a real world in my own personal life application of, of the usefulness and the validity of the whole practice. Like, you know, this saves engines and I just saved one that I know. Did you have a moment maybe, or maybe it was a collection of them between 85 and 97 where you're like, this is, this is where I need to be. This is, um, you know, just something that kind of made it real to you. Um, not really to tell you the truth. I knew about oil analysis between those, those periods. And after I got my first car, I, I did uh, sample it and then give him the samples and let him look at it. And I'd look at the reports, but it didn't really, um, I guess maybe until I was in into high school, well into high school, and was doing my own oil changes, that it really became kind of a uh, something that looked like it would it would be pretty neat to get into. Even at that point, though, I wasn't completely sure if it was going to be my destiny to work here or not. But it did work out like that, and it's been great since. I didn't really understand until you get in here and actually look at the data as, as to how good oil analysis is and, and how it, how well it works and the something unusual shows up in the oil. There's a reason. And if you know know enough about how a vehicle is operated or something along those lines, how it's being run, you can usually tell. And that's the hard part about our job is that we usually we don't get that much information, except on our own vehicle. So that's why it's nice to test our own stuff because you know exactly what's going on with it. Something I'm interested in too is, um, you know, I've, I've only been around since 2017. So I want to learn a little bit more about what it was like when you started. Can you describe like a typical day in 1997 or maybe, you know, it doesn't have to be that exact year, but what was a typical day like here at the lab compared to now? Are there any big differences where you're like, oh my gosh, that's that's not happening anymore or anything, whether it's how we're set up, maybe the tests we're running. Is there any big differences you can point to? 
Well, the tests themselves are actually virtually identical. The spectrometers have improved significantly since then. So spectrometry and, and how reliable the machines have been, not necessarily more accurate, but certainly more reliable and easy to run production on. But the viscometers, flashpoints, insoluble tests, all those are pretty much the same. But when I started, it was basically a three-person operation. My father, would he would write the reports. I came in, and what I was doing was building kits and logging in samples. And my Uncle John was actually running the lab. So he would actually sit, produce the data. Those days we were doing about probably about 25 to 35 samples a day in that area. So pretty light, but uh, everything, all the processes were a lot more manual. Uh, the setting up of samples, that has changed quite a bit. The the testing or how we how we do viscosities the, the viscosity test is the exact same but how we set them up and we put them in preheats now to help help the warming process and all that's been greatly improved and of course I don't have to build kits anymore so but the kit was one of the the kit process was one of the things that uh, when somebody would come in we, we would get only 30 40 samples in a day they would mark a slip that needed kits and we'd only have two or three kits to, kit packages to build up in a day so it wasn't very time consuming matter and unlike today where we're, we're sending out hundreds and hundreds of kits on a daily basis so what was the customer base like starting out um because now we're, we're, we're everywhere was it kind of a slow burn as far as you know expanding out of fort wayne like what was the growth like in terms of of who who's using our service it was. We were very localized. Fort Wayne was our biggest market. We did a lot more pickups back in the day where we would go to Fort Wayne Community Schools and pick up samples. And we and we used to even continue doing that up to just a couple of years ago when we started getting put uh, having prepaid postage on our kits. At that point, we would just give them the prepaid kits and put them in the mailbox. There's only one customer now or two customers that we actually still pick up. But a lot of pickups, a lot of uh, local factories. We had a, a salesman early on, a guy named Craig Ginter, who spent a lot of time up in Detroit working for the, uh, trying to get Ford and General Motors. And we did. He got a lot of those facts they're good business industrial works good business but it usually takes a salesman to keep that stuff going because a, a new service manager will come in and they might have their own oil analysis program that they're used to so they switch over or uh, a recession hits or, and all of a sudden they're cutting costs and, and oil analysis should not be the first thing that they preventive maintenance on your machines should not be the first thing cut, but a lot of times it was. Or our competitors would come in and offer free oil analysis to factories if they would just buy their oil. And uh, so that, that type of thing was what we ran into a lot of. But we did a lot of truck fleets, a lot of industrial work, very few what we used to call onesie twosies, the customers with a car or a truck that would sample on a regular basis. We were doing in that day, if we did 40 samples in a day, we would probably have maybe three or four aircraft. And a lot of them were from uh, Fort Wayne Air Service, which is now a premier aviation out at Inter Fort Wayne International, Muncie Aviation, Michigan Aviation, but very localized in the tri state area and uh, not much else out of that. So we were really back then before the internet, our sales states were Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, and Illinois, basically. I remember when the idea of Ryan joining the pod was circulating in your mind and he even brought it up while we were at all at Oshkosh the um, summer prior to that interview. And I even said out loud to him, slightly inebriated at the end of the evening, that Joe might be a little too afraid. 
But you come across great in that interview. <laughs> you didn't. I did. I did. He he brought up the conversation um, around uh, the equipment IDs and which engines and machines that we see the most. Okay. And he was a little disappointed that you didn't have him on the pod that time to sort of let him in top ten, count them down. Yeah. Well, that and, was kind of that was kind of why um, you know sitting down is always. It, it weighed on me in the sense that, like, I, I was like, oh, I've done them wrong by not having them on yet and, and, you know, feeling bad about that. And then when he sat down, though, you know, he has he has that Garfield uh, coffee mug. And, A, he sits down, he looks at his mug, and he goes, ah, I got to refill that. <laughs> and then he gets up and leaves and comes back. And then he, he just sits down in the most, you know, it, it's sometimes it's it's um painfully obvious that a guest hasn't done one of these before and ryan hadn't but you you wouldn't have been able to tell like he just sat down put the mug down and was like all right we ready you know and and like and he was completely himself comfortable um and and we and we had a really good talk i would definitely encourage everyone to check it out because Clips we did not include. I mean, it's, it was a fairly long episode for good reason. We were, we were having a, a good time recording it. But um, memorable stuff that we didn't clip for this show um, would be me asking him, like, in an apocalyptic scenario, what CD is going to be playing in his in his Chevy. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and just I that was a lead in question that um, looking back on, I was really happy with because I just felt like it, it perfectly um, ushered him in and let people know about his personality and his humor. And um, I think of all the writers in the building, he's in that class where you always get a little bit of that personality in a comment. And it obviously shined through in the episode. All right, so let's go from episode 49 to episode 59 with Matt, the garage engineer. Mm. Yeah, Matt's a good guy. And when he first reached out, um, I was all for it in the sense that here's a guy who has a, a well-maintained social media presence and, and the content he was uploading made it clear he was well-spoken and not in any intimidating sort of way either. So he was, he was a really fun guest to have and we had more in common than I thought probably mainly the marathon thing <laughs> we both run marathons but he, he's done more impressive ones he's done the boston marathon but that was a that was a fun talk let's get to it then i'm blackstone joe today i'm joined by matt aka garage engineer matt thanks for joining me hey no problem glad to be on the show so what's the story behind garage engineer and, and for those who don't know that is your instagram handle so can you tell me about the beginning of that account? Sure, no problem. The name Garage Engineering comes from the fact that um, I'm an engineer by day. I'm an engineer in the in the mechanic in the uh, automotive industry, so that's where the name came from. The account itself kind of got started. Um, I think it was five years ago I started. It was more of a, a motivation tactic for me to get my butt in gear working on my car. You know, my, my Camaro that I have now at the time, it's a third generation Camaro and it was it was in a million pieces in my garage and I was kind of losing a bit of motivation. So I started posting videos or just posting some pictures of the car and kind of setting goals for myself to hold myself accountable. And um, it kind of took off from there. So I kind of getting some people jumping in saying they liked the project or I would ask questions on a problem I was hitting and people would respond. After that, you know, people started seeing me at, at autocrosses or at events that I would go to and they would actually come up to me like, hey, Matt, like I, I saw your video. Thanks for posting. And I was at the at that time, I thought, you know, just my wife and my mom were watching my videos and that was it. But um, it turns out a lot more people have been watching them than I, than I had thought. 
so as that kind of progressed, you know, people were asking me about, you know, what, what parts do you have on your car and, and uh, you know, asking for advice on, on doing your first track day or your first autocross event or something. So now it's kind of been, you know, kind of the direction I go with my account is I really just like to encourage people to get out in the garage and work on their cars and, and not be afraid to take on some big projects and one step at a time, you know, just, just encourage people to get out there and drive and, and work on their cars. So it's been, uh, it's been a pretty cool journey so far, but uh, I've been really liking it. Yeah, and the Camaros were where our interaction started. So you sent in a sample from the 87 Camaro with the 5.7 V8. What was your interest when you first sent in the sample? What were you looking to learn and, and how do you come across Blackstone in general? Sure. So I think um, to answer the second part of your question first, so I, I don't remember exactly when I first heard of Blackstone. I just feel like it, it, it's always been in the back of my mind. So I'm always, you know, watching car shows on TV or YouTube channels and things like that. And Blackstone, just some, there's always something I've known about. It's something I've always wanted to try. So with my Camaro, the motor in the car is, it's not original. And I really don't know much of the history on it. So I've, I've had it out of the car, but I basically just resealed it and made sure it was uh, nice and clean. I repainted it and just put it back in the car really without doing too much detective work on it. So as I got it running, you know, the first time after I had the engine out, I was just really curious about kind of what, what the insides of the engine were and how it was going. But I was also noticing I was burning a bit of coolant. So I, it wasn't enough where I was really suspicious at the time, but we'll, we'll get into the result in a second. But it ended up being somewhere, probably something I should have paid attention to. But um, I noticed I was just constantly topping off the expansion tank just a little bit. And in my mind, as I went throughout the summer of driving it, I just thought, well, maybe it's just a system burping itself. You know, it's just kind of, you know, you know, broken. Or maybe there's a little leak dripping that I'm not noticing. But turns out I probably should have been paying a little bit closer attention to that. Yeah. So when, when we got you the results, I, I remember taking a look at the report after you sent it over to me and, and we saw a lot of sodium, uh, which jumped out on our end, especially because you were running mobile one, if I remember right. Yeah, that's and right. Mobile one doesn't use it as additive. So that was a, a big giveaway. And we also found some, some excess metal, which, you know, from my mind, you're doing autocross, you're bound to have, you know, some more wear than average just by virtue of, of use. But with sodium in there, it, it did point to a leak. But I'm wondering, was that the first coolant leak that you had tackled? Or was it uh, something that you kind of been familiar with tracking down issues like that, not necessarily in this engine, but maybe others? Yeah, this is, uh, I've had definitely coolant leaks before. So I've had this car since 2017. So I've had it for, um, you know, about four, almost coming up on five years now. There's been many, many leaks I've chased down over the years. Typically coolant leaks, the ones that I've seen in the past where maybe an intake bolt was going into a coolant patch and I didn't have enough sealant or RTV on it or something, but that would leak externally so I could see it and kind of fix it and, and really know that I solved the problem. With this coolant leak, though, this is this is one of the ones where it was probably the hardest to find and took me the most digging to get to. So what was the uh, the exact issue allowing um, that coolant contamination to reach the engine oil? Yeah, so it ended up being a head gasket issue. So when I got the results, I was like, okay, I kind of had this in the back of my mind as a, I'm, I'm hoping this is not what I'm going to see, but I'm glad that we're actually going through this. So I started with just taking the intake manifold off and I, I looked really closely at the gaskets and I was trying to see if there was an obvious leak path. I was trying to, I was actually hoping to see something obvious, like either a torn gasket or a place where the, uh, you know, the RTV was torn or something like that, but everything checked out. Okay. The gaskets look great. There was no scarring on either of the surface of the head or the intake. So I kept digging a little bit deeper. Deeper. So what I did next was before I pulled the heads off, I did a um, pressure decay test on the cylinder. So I got a rental kit from one of the local auto parts stores. And what that kit is, if anybody doesn't know, you can pressurize the cylinders with some air and just do a leak down test on it. So you can see, make sure it's still holding pressure, which should be a clue if, you're, if your head gasket is blown or something like that, or something's wrong with the engine. 
that ended up checking out okay. So I kept tearing down the motor, you know, more. And finally, when I popped the heads off, I was able to see pretty clearly that one of the cylinders looked a lot different than the rest of them. So I think the leak, the coolant leak that was going into the cylinders probably wasn't enough to catch on that pressure decay test I was talking about. And that also is kind of why I explained when I took the oil sample, the oil was still black. So I hadn't really seen any evidence of a coolant leak. So there was no steaming from the engine. There was no milkiness in the oil, things that you would typically see from a big coolant leak. So kind of looking back as I was taking apart the engine, all these little clues of, you know, barely slowly topping off the expansion tank, passing the pressure decay test that I did before I popped the heads off. It all kind of makes sense that it was a very slow coolant leak that I really wouldn't have found until I, I actually physically looked at the cylinder and saw some of the corrosion that was happening because of the coolant that was in there. So I'm not going to lie, part of that clip, why it was a must to include and, 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 a, and a fun one to look back on is proof of concept, you know, for Blackstone, for what we do. Here's the guy who sent in a sample. We identified signs of a problem. He found that very same problem on his end and was able to address it thanks to an oil analysis. But at the same time, you know, Matt did us the courtesy of coming on the show, helping promote it and lending his brand to ours for that episode so you do a really good job of staying humble about the analysis side of things and catching the coolant leak on our end something that doesn't really come up i'm so surprised about in um the meet the analyst interviews mm -hmm. is the bragging that goes on amongst ourselves yeah the when we hear back from a customer and we will just be like oh that's the problem we suggested the problem that i thought yeah um was there yeah um <laughs> There's your problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it does feel good to constantly be reminded that that what we do is real. Um, it has real value, and we do like to flex that when we have the opportunity to do so. But when I'm talking to somebody who has you know as solid a background and understanding of of maintenance on their end, I definitely want to meet them halfway and, and have an honest back and forth about it. And uh, yeah, a good one for sure. So then speaking of those meet the analyst interviews, that's our next clip. We've got senior analyst Miranda Beck. Yeah, this is one that uh, I hold in pretty high regard. I've always said that. And I think it might surprise some listeners, both how I feel about it and what it was. Um, this was an episode where Yes, it's between two analysts, and yes, this is an oil analysis podcast, but there's not a lot of oil analysis in it. And part of that was by design. Um, you know, a lot of the time with these episodes, we have made sure to be data heavy. It's been kind of like a trip to the classroom at times. A lot of the sermons, <laughs> petroleum-based sermons I give, have been very instructional. But the fact is, like, we're we're regular people at the end of the day. We leave the office and some of our work comes home with us. You take a lot of your work home with you with this podcast. But I want to illustrate every now and again, um, you know, what our interests are. Uh, what, what informs our writing? What gives our reports the character they have? How do we, you know, go about the, the business of life when we're not behind the keys? So I wanted to take the opportunity to do that with this episode, and it's obviously present in other Meet the Analyst episodes to some degree, just not as concentrated as this one. So I think it may surprise some listeners um, in the sense that we're not talking about sources of potassium and 
boron and and what viscosity et cetera et cetera but for good reason i think every now and again we need a, a palate cleanser or just an opportunity to be ourselves and and that's why i view that episode as an example of all righty so then here's miranda beck Was there copy or content or anything you created before Blackstone that kind of informed at all your style? Like I did um, copywriting for a realtor and that was like talking about like lead certifications and stuff. And that was kind of a little, I don't know, I didn't lean on it heavily, but I knew that like, okay, if you could write about that, yeah, something you, you don't have any real estate sort of background, then surely you can pick up a whole different world so did you create any content before that informed your style or anything like that um not for anybody else not for any other company or anything but um for myself for my own business uh i created the website and you know wrote all the copy for that and i i was you know responsible for all of the graphic design stuff and the branding and you know like the gift cards and and all that stuff so uh yeah, that that was really my main experience with, um, you know, writing in that sort of way. Yeah. But again, that's, you know, it's very different. But mm. so what was your first car? And the, the, the second part to that question is, how do you think the oil would have looked in analysis from that car? Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, my first car I did not have very long. It was a Saturn SC1, which you don't see those very often. It's got character, though. Yeah, just real tiny uh, cars. It has, like, a weird third door. It was like a coupe, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It was just an, a very interesting little car. Yeah. Uh, and I actually got hit by a semi-truck uh, when I was driving in oh the God. winter, like, during a snowstorm. Where were you? Um, it was by like Huntington Markle exit. Okay. I was right. I was about to get off the highway and like the, um, a semi truck. So I was, wasn't hit head on or anything like right, that, right, but right. like, it just kind of like slid into me uh-huh. and like pushed me off the road. Jeez. And, uh, it definitely did significant damage to my car, but mm. me and my friend, we were fine. We weren't hurt at all. So um, it, it was your first car. So you would have been like, I was 16. Yeah. So how long were you driving and then and then this happens? Well, um, so my birthday is in June and this, I don't remember the month that it happened, but um, since it was snowing, it was probably like December or something oh like gosh. that. Um, and I, being a stupid teenager, um, decided to, me and my friend were going to see a band, one of our friends, uh-huh. you know, play who was in a band. And uh, so we drove out in a level three snow emergency <laughs> <laughs> uh, despite the fact that, you know, our parents were like, hey, you can't go to this thing. Yeah. We were just kind of like, you know what? We're going to go anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so that was definitely like felt like karma <laughs> or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like most terrified to have to tell my parents <laughs> right. that I got into this accident or whatever. Obviously, they were very glad that I was OK. So I didn't really... No, I don't want to say I didn't get in trouble, but right. like I think they were just so relieved that I was fine that so they couldn't be mad at me right away. You think the engine probably was in pretty good shape, maybe? I mean, it was running well, nothing wrong, and then I just had to take that hit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was running pretty well, um, so I don't know. It would, would be interesting to <laughs> see <Yeah>. a sample. <laughs> I still had the first car. Um, I had a Pontiac Sunfire, and I still had my first car when I came to work here. And then um, 
I wanted, I, I was really excited to get something just, just a different car. Cause it was my sister's had been the family forever. So I wanted something for me and I traded it in. And then I remember telling Ryan, our boss that I traded in the Sunfire and he goes, are you kidding? It's like, really? <laughs> and I was like, all of a sudden I felt ashamed. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> how dare I? But like, I don't know. I missed a lot. Cause there's nothing wrong with it. You know? Yeah. I just got rid of it for, for image sake. But yeah, I always wonder what that would have looked like as well. And before we wrap up today, uh, my producer did just pass me a note, and this relates to oil analysis that, um, let's just say, predates your time. You might say oil analysis has been in your blood. Uh, would you care to divulge exactly how oil analysis is factored into your, uh, your family lineage, let's say? Yeah, so before I went to my interview at Blackstone, um, my dad actually told me, he was like, did you know that your Uncle Donald was a petroleum analyst in Vietnam? That was his job. Um, and obviously, I knew that uh, he was in the Army uh, in Vietnam, but I never really knew exactly what it was that he did. And it turns out uh, he's doing basically what we do every day here at Blackstone. Um, I think he had kind of more of a focus from what my dad was telling me on fuel analysis. Mm -hmm. So he basically, especially for aircraft, um, wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, the fuel was good to use. So basically kind of similar to our fuel testing, you know, is it is everything in spec or mm -hmm. is there anything amiss? Is this fuel serviceable or is it not? Yeah. And that was, you know, his main job. Because I guess in Vietnam, they would have to have the fuel shipped over and then it might sit for extended Yeah, I, I think they had like these big tankers and stuff mm -hmm. and then they would analyze the fuel and the oil and, and make sure that, you know, everything was in good shape to mm -hmm. be used in all the various equipment that they, right. you know. Because, yeah, it might be serviceable at the time it's manufactured, produced, but by the time it actually is needed for use and then all the things that can happen during transport and all that, yeah, there's a lot of factors that could go into it. So that's that's interesting that also it was fuel analysis and not you know, not even just the oil. I mean, what, so was there oil analysis, any testing that you remember them talking about? Or, like, were they just looking for – maybe it was really basic and just looking for, like, visible contaminants or – yeah, I'm not really sure. I wish I wish that I could um, pick his brain on that, but they obviously weren't hauling a spectrometer over there. Yeah, so it's probably not. Probably a little different from from our uh, mo. But. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I believe that that's still his official. Um, I'm looking at his diploma when he graduated from the petroleum products analysis course um, on February 11th, 1966. Wow. Uh, but I do believe that that's still um, a job in the Army. Um, they still have petroleum analysts. And so it would be interesting to, to see what they do. Maybe some of the listeners have some insight that we, you know, don't yeah. have. But No, of course. Something, something is being uh, tested and determined and yeah. analyzed <laughs> and written up. So. It's important stuff. All right, so this next interview clip, our second to last, is one that I pushed on you so fast when I saw it come up across my report screen. I said, this is an episode of Slick Talk, and this is the Justin Kilmer and his Million Mile Accord interview and episode. Yeah, what a gem. I mean, both him and his Accord, honestly. Um, yeah, we had to do that one. Um, so many people are viewing mileage differently these days. 
you know, like what a car has and, and what it's capable of. And here is a shining example of where just careful routine maintenance can result in over a million miles on an Accord. It deserves to be celebrated, but also it's a great way of illustrating um, what our analysis can find. That I think might surprise some people detecting additives, even if the customer hasn't mentioned them, seeing signs of them, um, pointing out you know, what is or, or, or isn't a problem, even when levels are off the charts. Um, and yeah, credit to Justin for being uh, such a good um, guest appearance. Um, just a good, honest guy taking care of his Hondas and uh, being kind enough to sit down and talk to us about it. So Justin, uh, AKA TX Accord on YouTube and Instagram. I came across your file when one of my coworkers, actually co-producer of this show, he sent a sample my way and he said, whoa, there is an Accord with over a million miles on it. And so I immediately had to look at the sample. He named it the absolute legend and that's certainly deserving. Where does your journey with this 03 Accord start? So actually from the very beginning, my wife actually bought this car brand new in 2003 uh, from Pensacola Honda back when we were dating. And uh, she drove it as her family car for years. And then I took it over and then I've put a whole bunch of miles on it since then. But so yeah, we've had the entire time brand new off the lot. Is that normal for you to want to buy a new car and see it through to the end? I mean, what's what's your typical ownership track record go as far as vehicles? Oh, when I was younger, I used to trade cars like crazy. Like every couple of few months, I'd end up with a new car or not new, but new to me car. Uh, I've never had a car this long. I've never had a car with nearly this many miles or anything either. I think this is the first car I've ever taken over 200,000. So what made it so special? Was it, you know, how well it did on gas, the Honda reputation? I mean, they have great reputations around here with what we do in oil analysis, but was there something on your end where over the course of owning it those first few years, you thought, we're really going to stick it out with this one and just see what it can do. Um, well, the special thing about this car to us, at least my wife and me, we, we both uh, are manual transmission fans and it's a six speed. Right. This was the first year the Honda put in the six speed with the V6 in 2003. And so uh, she bought it specifically for that reason. And, uh, you know, just kept on going and uh, you know, we really like the cards. It is good on gas. Uh you know, all power options, leather interior and everything. So I had everything that we were looking for and, you know, just kept driving it. And as far as yourself jumping into the experience, how did you get introduced to Blackstone Laboratories or, you know, the industry in general? Okay. Uh, so I've got a friend, uh, Tim, who I've met online. I've since uh, hung out with in person a couple of times, a real good friend. We chat all the time. And he'd been using uh, your services for quite a while. And, you know, at one point he just said, hey, you should uh, send off a sample, especially with all the miles the engine had on it. And so uh, he's like, yeah, you just, you know, go to the website, request a kit, they'll mail it to you. And uh, he said, you just take the sample and send it back to him. Said, you know, give me your credit card information. And they'll send you this little personalized report. So I did that. Um, my first report here from y'all came from uh, April 23rd of 2021. Car had almost 800,000 miles on it. Uh, so that's how I got turned on to it. And, uh, you know, I, it's really neat, all the stuff that you analyze. And then I think part of the coolest part of it is the uh, comment section where 
you know, it's actually got personalized comments. It's not just, Hey, we tested it and it had X amount of whatever in the, in the oil. So I, I like the personalized part of it as well. Yeah, definitely. That's what appeals to me about writing the comments as well as the fact that we're free to connect and sort of mm-hmm. you know, insert any sort of personal, you know, take we might have. And if I had seen that first sample from your Honda, I mean, right away, I'd be jumping to make sure we had our details correct because <laughs> 790,000, you know, is impressive enough. And I want to talk about that first sample a little bit because we saw a couple of high levels back then, but obviously mm-hmm. went way further and and didn't have to do any major engine work that I know of. Specifically, we saw a lot of copper and lead. And I'm, I was wondering, back then you had mentioned using, I believe, Marvel Mystery Oil around that time, or was there any other additive in, in the maintenance history around that point in time? So, yeah, specifically around that point in time, I had started adding a little bit of Marvel Mystery Oil to the oil uh, shortly before it ing- or before the oil changed, say a few hundred miles before I'd changed it, I'd let some of that run through uh, and keep that in there for a little bit. Uh, and then I had used some engine restore. Now, of course, the more miles the car had on it, started using some oil. Um, I remember back in the day, I could actually change oil and run probably about 4,000 miles or so before I had to add a drop of oil to it. And then, you know, as time went on and miles went on, then it started working it way down to 3,000, 2,000, so on and so forth. So as I noticed, I was, you know, going through more oil uh, between changes, I had started uh, adding every once in a while the uh, restore, the engine restore. So uh, that's where y'all said that those levels came from was from the engine restore the heavy heavy metal levels in there. Yeah, it makes perfect sense because I remember looking at the slip on that first sample, seeing the MMO and thinking, well, harmless, doesn't really leave any elements behind. I was like, but restore though, because the the reason that jumped out to us, copper and lead, they're at similar levels and the additive uses a heavy dose of each of those elements. So the fact they were similar, but also the fact that every other metal looked good and there was enough of each of those metals where unless you were noticing like low oil pressure, some sort of a knock, it just didn't make sense for all of that to actually be from the bearing. So it's good to know a harmless source of each of those elements mm-hmm. because clearly you're able to go a lot longer. So I, I want to talk next about the gap between these samples because it's a lot of mileage. Was there anything maintenance wise? between the 790,000, I know it's a big stretch, and, and, and the million where you really had to invest some time or or labor into keeping that Honda on the road? Um, well, with the J-Series engine specifically, they require a uh, timing belt change approximately every 105,000 miles, and I've stuck to that. So uh, in between those samples, it would have had a couple where actually I, I changed the timing belt, if I recall correctly, around 850,000, and then... Uh, the engine kind of got sick a little bit, we'll say, at just over 900,000, about 920,000, uh, ended up, I still haven't pulled the engine apart yet. It either dropped a valve or uh, sucked a valve seat out. But anyhow, number one cylinder went away. It just went to zero compression. So that, that's that been my big thing with uh, the original engine. So di- didn't do any maintenance as far as opening it up necessarily. It's just the, you know, the timing belts, you know, or the, the one timing belt replacement between the two of those. Fun to look back at that episode with Justin, um, both because of 
how impressive his results were, but also being able to connect with yet another person who is aware of oil analysis. You know, he, he was an existing customer, but someone who had a lot of questions still to be answered. So if you go back and listen to that whole episode, you know, we're able to walk through his results address some of what his curiosities were. And if you find yourself as a person who's either new to this or you've maybe had a report or two and you weren't sure what all of it meant, maybe you didn't know what questions to even ask. Um, this is a great episode to look at if you're looking for a perspective outside the building. All right, so that's going to bring us to the very last clip of this batch, and that's going to be the Christmas episode. And I really wanted to dig this one up, Joe, because it features the original producer of Slick Talk, Kyle Schur. And Kyle helped get this thing off the ground on the editing and production side of things. And he's, um, I thought it was just a really good capsulation of what he brought to the episodes in their early days. And at episode 100, I wanted to sort of give a, uh, give him a pat on the back and a, a thank you for getting things going. Yeah, the, the first retrospective we ever had was this Christmas special with Kyle. And that felt like a big occasion on its own. You know, that was a year of, of slick talk. And yeah, when I look back to those early days, I mean, it should be stated that uh, the show doesn't start, at least in, in the form of slick talk that you all know, uh, it doesn't start without Kyle. So it, it had to be done, I think, um, giving you all a listen to him, um, his perspective on things, um, but also just looking back at, at a moment where we thought we had really crossed the threshold, which, which in, in a way we did, but what we have now arrived at with 100 episodes with so many, you know, meaningful guest appearances, hot takes dished out, um, listener interaction we've had since then, it's fun to go back to the early stages with the original producer um, and kind of get his look at things. Um, Kyle, if you're listening, we appreciate you for, for the for the early days on, on this show. And uh, yeah, this is uh, me and the original producer, Kyle. This literally marks a year of Slick Talk episode. So we, we had to do a retrospective. We had to look and see what's changed, what's stuck out this year. I think you mentioned the other day that, you know, it is kind of a big deal to have a year of of podcast episodes. And I started to think yeah. about it and I was like, it absolutely is. Because how many shows do you <laughs> think are just lying dormant after one big after idea and then yeah. the host just kind of lost it? Yeah, yeah, no, we, uh, you know, this is a special episode, so I think it's okay to brag. Uh, you know, we, we've kept the ship going, you know, and I, I think that's something to celebrate. Uh, we got a great listener base. I always uh, love seeing the comments on all the oil slips that I see. And, uh, you know, whenever I talk to somebody on the phone, too, they say they like the show. You know, that's great. And, and all the comments you guys have left. So, uh, you know, it's definitely appreciated. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to take a couple moments to, to kind of celebrate this this year. So before Kyle came on board... Um, I just had the idea for the show, a uh, very vague, uh, nebulous podcast idea, like so many of these things are, and had the mic, had a laptop, 
Um, and I had a suggestion from a friend to download Audacity. And that mm-hmm. was it. And I, I, Kyle, I think for people who haven't done the work you have, um, it's it may not seem like much. But if you've never pressed record on yeah. Audacity or any sort of program, like it's pretty strange. You yeah. Know? Yeah. No, I, I wouldn't be able to do <laughs> what I do if it wasn't for all the, um, you know, that my major in college was, uh, was media production with some, uh, it was a focus in audio. And I, I spent weeks and weeks and weeks learning, uh, you know, different stuff like, uh, Pro Tools was what I mostly used for the classes, but, uh, used Audacity in all my side projects because it's so accessible. You know, it's a free program. It's, uh, it's really hard to learn, <laughs> uh, but if you have some foundation, you know, it's kind of easy to jump into it. So, so yeah, it's definitely, uh, I don't blame, <laughs> don't blame you for, for being kind of so, weirded out by it. So yeah, we, we, we start there with, with the idea with me not having any like grasp of, of that side of it. Like I knew I had something to say saying it and getting it, it uh, turning it into a listenable practice is a whole other thing so along comes Kyle here and he's and he's able to to step in and immediately you know steer steer the ship for us from from the from the editing side and now I know that we have the possibility of doing a show yeah and introductions the first episode you know, you have this idea in mind of what recording is just from if you've like just watched movies or shows and mm-hmm. and you just kind of imagine what it's like to step in and, and record something. So, Kyle, just going back to that first day, I remember starting off the monologue and like flubbing a line and I just I just wanted to cut <laughs> everything right there. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. And you have experience that you have, you have the experience to know to keep going. Right. Just don't let it overwhelm you. Yeah. Yeah. I think, a you know, a variation of what I said, you know, it's, it's all digital. You know, if, if we were recording on film, uh, you know, then I, then I would see, uh, you know, cut, scrub everything and, and try to get it right. But like, it's digital, you know, so we just program or just record whatever we can get. And then, uh, let, let the, the poor guy editing it all figure it out. <laughs> you know, that, that's always been and- my philosophy. I do think it should be noted that Kyle is not dead. He just left Blackstone to pursue more opportunities. I said if you're listening. <laughs> I said if you're listening, which means he would be alive. <laughs> uh, you, it was so wistful, though, that I um, it felt like you were sort of like looking to the skies. And Well, I mean, he has left the building, um, not the building known as life, but he has left the Blackstone building. So in a way, you know, he is... He has departed the cult, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> Dead to us. Sure, uh, okay. Not really, but I see the, yes. So, Joe, essentially the concept of Slick Talk is expanding upon everything we put in the report comments. Mm-hmm. So when you sit down, though, do you feel that energy coming out when you're talking about some of the pretty mundane or matter-of-fact things that here at Slick Talk? Um, this next run of clips that I have for everyone here is what I call the hot takes or mm. the takes that we could constantly reassure customers every step of the way. Welcome to Blackstone. Here's all the facts about yeah. oil that are wrong and true. Uh, listen to them, learn them, and you'll be good. Yeah, there is 
a definite sense of wanting to take what's familiar to us, the analysts, the people who work in the building, and constantly reimagine it in the heads of the the customer and 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 wherever they're coming from. So it's it's a constant reshaping, reimagining of ideas that are familiar to us, but looking at them through the lens of someone who is brand new, brand new to this process, to owning and caring for a vehicle, airplane, boat, whatever, and putting yourself in their shoes. So in one sense, you can think, well, I've described these elements or these physical properties before. What more is there to say? But there's always more to say because there's always someone new on the other end coming to Blackstone, coming to Slick Talk, and they need to hear this in terms they can understand. And that is always what drives the performance and the delivery on an episode where I'm talking about an element that I've talked about before, surely, over the course of 100 episodes. But even if I arrive to the mic with a lot of bites at the apple, someone else is going to be looking at it with an entirely fresh perspective. So keeping that in mind is always going to be a goal with every show. And now here are Joe's hottest takes. It happens all the time. A customer will hear one thing or perhaps see a recommendation on the oil they're buying. And then we tell them another based on the results we see in the sample they send in. And there we have a bit of a conflict. Will the customer trust the label, the advertisement, or will they opt to go by the results in deciding what to do next with their maintenance plan? I'm going to break down one of those very same instances with you today. This sample pertains to an engine that was going 7,500 miles between oil changes. The customer bought an oil that was advertised to be good for 20,000 miles. And so they wondered if the oil looked like it had the amount of use that they put on it and if it could go longer. Here's the situation. The engine is wearing pretty well. Uh, some metals line up perfectly with averages, some of them a bit higher, but nothing really concerning from a wear standpoint. You look at the oil's physical properties, it has a normal viscosity. Low insoluble showed the oil filter was holding up well. No issues there. Didn't find coolant, didn't find excess dirt. But there was one point of interest, one thing that kept us from jumping to a 20,000 mile oil change, which as you'll hear later is a bit ambitious to begin with, but the sticking point was fuel. This sample had 2.5% fuel based on the flash point. It's a fairly high level. It's more than we typically find from normal use. Hence the reason we opted to avoid a longer interval, at least in terms of our recommendation, the customer's free to do what they want, but in terms of what we wanted to see on the next sample, we wanted to see another oil run close to 7,500 miles as opposed to a longer interval because we want to know is excess fuel an ongoing, a worsening problem, or is this a blip on the radar? 
We want to go beyond the OLM because in oil analysis, we're kind of speaking a different language. Uh, operation, you know, the way a car is used is really good to know um, on our end because it just plays a, a vital role in making sense of certain results. But operation alone doesn't necessarily call for an oil change. For example, if you do uh, 50% uh, towing. Um, during an oil run, you, know, you have some sort of truck or SUV, something, you know, pretty much made to haul. And you do a lot of towing. Let's say it's more than 50%. Maybe it's the entire oil run. Well, so let's say, for example, that triggers something in the algorithm to drop that oil life percentage down and call for an oil change. Well, we're not necessarily going to see the same thing on our end. In fact, usually we find that when customers change the oil due to a low OLM percentage, we often find they could run the oil longer, um, well past, in fact. So oil analysis is a really good complement to the OLM. And if you want to make use of both and save some money, you can always take a sample through the dipstick um, without changing the oil. You can do that using a hand pump. Um, we actually sell one through our website and it's going to use really small quarter inch uh, tubing that's going to go down the dipstick tube. And then you can pull up a sample and see how things look. And you can weigh our analysis in conjunction with the OLM. With that, though, we, we still understand why folks might want some peace of mind. And for that reason, you're absolutely welcome to send in a sample of the unused oil. And there are practical purposes for that, I will say, beyond just being concerned about a date or something like that. Some people want to see what the additives are. And for good reason, you know, you want to see if that oil starts off with, you know, sodium, for example, since that's a marker for coolant contamination, or you might want to see what the TBN is starting out, how much active additive is ready to go and, and what that starting value is. So you can track it in your, in comparison to the used samples, all that good stuff. There is a lot to be gleaned from an unused sample, even just beyond us checking it for serviceability. So that's something worthwhile to do. And we do it all the time because people like to have a record. They like to see what the used product looks like uh, compared to the unused. So NS2, NS3. These are a couple of Nissan approved oils for CVT transmissions. And in this case, color can be a pretty clear indicator. In fact, if the color of the fluid is red, then that's almost always indicative of ATF being in use. I had a customer call one day and they mentioned that their tech, whoever was performing the oil change, said, yep, that fluid's going to change red due to oxidation. Well, that's not true. And I also, I feel bad for however many people have been told statements like that, especially when it comes to CVTs, because here's the deal. When you have the wrong fluid in these things, people will report to us almost instantaneous um, operational issues. Maybe some of this is a little psychosomatic, but uh, I do tend to believe, though, that the wrong oil being in use will affect these Pretty much right off the bat, uh, people will report issues with slipping or just rough operation in general. So it's certainly something that we have come across a lot to the point where, you know, we have a firm understanding of what NS2 fluid and NS3 fluid looks like. Now, these fluids will normally darken up um, just as a result of doing their job. 
So if you have an NS2 or an NS3 and the fluids start out as green or blue, as those fluids typically do, if it turns black, then that's not an indicator that the fluid broke down or, or that it was incorrect from the get-go. Dark color alone, we're going to put that to the side because any fluid, engine oil, ATF, CVT, um, as it's doing its job, there will be a darkening that occurs. But you should never see a red color. And when we're looking at the color, we'll then move on to something also very definitive as far as if it's the wrong fluid, and that will be additive levels. We're going to look at these in the spectral analysis, and we're going to see how these additive levels look in relation to one another, how is the balance, are the levels indicative of NS2 or NS3, and if we can put the color and the additive levels together, that's a pretty good indication of whether or not the right fluid is in use. Personally, I'm going to use an oil in my engine that doesn't use sodium. That is not because sodium is a bad additive. I'm going to like get that out of the way right now. I like to avoid oils with sodium in them because it's one of the markers for coolant contamination. So I'm going to buy something that I know doesn't have it, such as Mobile One, regular Mobile One, not Mobile Super, not any of the other varieties. Don't get it confused. I'm going to choose an oil like that because then I know if I do have some sodium pop up in a test, I know it's probably going to be from coolant because I've been running just, you know, for example, Mobile One for years. So that's kind of just the policy that I follow personally. And I think that's really something that a lot of people could do too. So our next question is from Herc. He asks, is black oil really a bad thing? And what are the best anti-wear additives? Okay, so black oil. This is definitely one that falls under frequently asked questions. It's probably on at least two or three slips that I come across myself just on a daily basis. Color alone is going to be pretty deceiving. Unless, of course, the color you're talking about is strawberry milkshake, then yeah, okay. That color's bad. That means you have probably 50% antifreeze in the engine. Absolutely. But when it comes to just black oil, well, to be quite honest, oil is going to darken immediately when you put it in the engine just by mixing with carryover from the last fill. It happens all the time. People will call and they'll say, well, I literally just changed my oil. It cannot be turning any sort of color. And then I'll respond with something like, well, you didn't get all the oil out. They're like, are you kidding me? Yes, I did. And it's just impossible because unless the engine is turning over during the oil change, there's still going to be oil from the last fill in there. Um, so that is going to darken the new oil, and that's fine. Um, we're talking about a really small amount. It's enough that it's going to affect the color, but not so much that it's going to impact how that new oil is going to work. So next up for you, though, I have a voicemail from a listener named Nathaniel. Hello, this is Nathaniel Graybill from County of Lake, Pennsylvania. First of all, love the podcast. Second of all, it's a minor detail, I know, but I was wondering 
if we'll ever get slick talk swag with more than six cylinders on it because some of us drive V8s. Thank you. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, that is a plug. I didn't even have to shamelessly do it myself. But yes, um, we have slick talk swag and six cylinders indeed. Um, no, first of all, thanks for being a listener. Uh, Nathaniel, that is great to hear from you. And also, yeah, I'm open to some alternative slick talk swag designs. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, I can see a V8 in our future for sure. Well, that brings us to the end of this retrospective, Joe. Yeah, it's been a fun one. And one that was an interesting one to prep as well, because, you know, we've said multiple times, 100th episode, but we didn't do 99 clips. And I think that there was a lot of consideration into what to include. And, and, and none of this is to say that, uh, that the remaining episodes that weren't featured weren't also near and dear. Um, they have all played a meaningful role. I think we were looking for turning points, um, interesting guest interviews that can apply to pretty much any listener. Um, I don't know, but, but, but there was an interesting process in gathering up those clips which is not to say that uh, that all 100, I think, have have been meaningful entries in, into the show. So I encourage everyone to check back. If you haven't listened through yet, there's something for you in these episodes. And we just wanted to highlight a few special moments that have been uh, very important along the way. And with that, we bring episode 100 to a close. Thank you for joining us. This show can only keep going because of listeners, listener interaction, and the continued enthusiasm that you all have expressed on your oil slips, on social media. It's been good to hear from you, and we're going to have more content heading your way. This is Blackstone Joe, signing off. The Slick Talk podcast is powered by Blackstone Laboratories. If you're ready to start your oil analysis journey, visit blackstone-labs.com to order your free test kit.